Hey everyone, welcome back to episode three of the Wisdom Collective. I'm excited for you to meet this week's guest, journalist and podcast commentator, Katie Herzog. Now earlier this year, Katie helped start a show that she co-hosts called Blocked and Reported. And a lot of you may have already heard about this show because it has been really popular. In fact, as of today, it's the fastest growing podcast on Patreon. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. On the one hand, I think it's because the show is just hilarious. If you haven't listened to it already, I would strongly encourage you to go give it a listen. But it's not just because it's funny. The show is so popular because these people are both journalists who really understand reading culture and our cultural moments that are going on right now. And her and I try to unpack and get after this idea that she's been writing about for a while called cancel culture. And we don't just talk about cancel culture, we talk specifically about how journalism and cancel culture have been intersecting over the last couple of years, um, why that's happening, what we might do about it, how we might not participate in that, and so much more. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation together. And until then, again, I encourage you to go listen to their show. And for my show, please subscribe, like, do whatever you're supposed to do on whatever medium you're listening to. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. I just want to thank you again for joining us. All right, hey everyone, welcome. I want to introduce you to Katie Herzog. Katie, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks for asking. Um, Katie, you're a journalist, um, well, I guess maybe formally a journalist, or I don't know what you're doing now as far as freelancing and all the rest. Yeah, I'm a, I guess I still identify as a journalist. Um, okay. I'm doing a podcast, so I have a podcast called Blocked and Reported. Um, before this, I was, a, as you know, I was a reporter for The Stranger, Seattle's All Weekly. Um, and I was laid off in, uh, after COVID, um, but I started this podcast and it's doing really well. And so now I don't have to write anymore. So, so I'm yeah. like basically semi-retired. I work like two days a week. It's great. <laughs> well, your podcast is killing it. I don't know. It's hard to always tell like how the rankings are working out, but you guys were close. At least when I was trying to look at it, you're like a top 100 on Patreon at least, right? Yeah, for a while we were the, I don't know if this is still true, but we were the fastest growing podcast on Patreon. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how the, how the numbers compare on like iTunes or whatever, but, um, but it's shocking. So of all of the strange things that have happened this year, for me personally, this is the strangest. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you guys have been, uh, well, yeah, it's not because, it, I mean, it's just fascinating to see. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with your previous experience, just not even being in that world. You bring like a freshness to it because you were coming from this world of journalism, which has its own ethos and everything, but you're bringing like it's a fresh perspective to podcasting. It's really fun to see. Um, yeah, you. yeah, it's been great. So uh, tell me more about um, Blocked and Reported, I guess. Um, and, and I hope you get back into writing still. That would be good. You're, you're a fine journalist, obviously. But um, um, yeah, I, I probably will at some point. But right now, I'm just like after years of daily deadlines, I just like burnout is part of it. I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. And the market for, for journalism right now is terrible. I mean, even yeah. major prestigious outlets don't pay very well. So you can spend, you know, a couple of days or a week or whatever working on something. And then, you, you know, you get like 300 bucks for it. Um, yeah. So it's just like the, the, the market is, and the market's totally flooded because there's so many journalists who've been laid off. Um, yeah, so there's a ton of competition. Just that, that pace of deadlines and all the rest. I want to talk more about some of that in, in a bit, but tell me more about Blocked and Reported. So what's up with the, the name? Obviously, is, it's catchy. It's sort of in your face, but what's, the, what's behind the name? What are you guys up to with that? Because uh, you're, you're a so, co-host of that show, right? 
Yeah, my uh, my co-host is named Jesse Single, and he's a, a reporter. He's he's freelance, but he was at New York Magazine before. Um, and the name is a. I realized recently I was like talking to a woman who isn't online, and I she asked me about what I did, and I told her I you know host podcast. And I told her the name, and she was like, "What does that mean?" Um, so I realized the name probably doesn't mean that much if you don't spend all of your time on Twitter, uh, like <laughs> Jesse and I do, unfortunately. So the name blocked and yeah. reported. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so the name is. Um, Blocked and reported is just sort of a common retort you'll hear on Twitter, sort of a joke you'd like. If somebody says something that you disagree with or you don't like or whatever, the retort would be blocked and reported. Um, and so the podcast, we we say that it's about like dumb internet drama, um, but it's really about more than that. It's it's cultural criticism. It's, there's a lot of media criticism. Um, mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about sort of the moment that we're in right now. I think both Jesse and I are fairly concerned that we're in this sort of strange cultural revolution and um there's been this like shrinking of of liberal values particularly on the left um and by liberal values i mean things like due process and free speech and free expression and uh an inquiry um and we've been observing this over the past couple years and this has certainly ramped up in recent weeks in a way that's i think become much more visible to the to the mainstream um, and so that's really what it's about. It's about the moment that we're in right now. Um, and yeah, there is so, no lack of material. Well, right, right. I mean, it's culture commentary, but you're right. The cultural moment is giving you plenty to talk about for sure, for sure. And so I want to talk about some of that. Um, I, I do want to focus in on um, journalism, like I said, and kind of where it's at, but also just this idea of cancel culture and, and all the rest. Um, this is something that you were talking about, not that you certainly didn't coin the idea, but you were talking about it before as as trendy and popular online. And I think mm-hmm. some of the reaction that I was getting at that point, um, in just an observing way, I was just watching it happen, was there was sort of like, there's two sides of it. On the one hand, it was like people like you and more, maybe a minority view, but people that were more left leaning, but they were saying like, this is a problem, you guys, we need to like check this and figure out how to handle this. And then others that were um, saying, that's just like a right wing talking point. Like that's a, an easily dismissive thing. So um, do you mind unpacking that a little bit? You've been talking about this for a while. Where did you start getting concerned about it and, and sort of why? And then what about that other side of it? Because I think there's some validity to some of that. It is this easy, dismissive kind of flippant thing to just say, oh, that's cancel culture, to just dismiss negative yeah. noise, you know? So how do yeah, you differentiate I, that too? I, I think that the, um, so, there has been a lot of, since this, so the term itself, I'm, and I'm not sure who coined the term, um, but yeah. the term itself has been around for, I guess, sort of this year, maybe last year as well. Last year, the beginning of last year, I think we call it uh, call out culture. There's been sort of different mm-hmm. terms for this. And it's not a new principle. You know, there are social norms for a reason. And people have always gotten called out for social norms. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I'm in such a sort of like liberal bubble that yeah. I don't, um, I don't have many examples of these things happening on the right. And I don't know your politics, but because you're a pastor, I, I think that you probably have a little bit better insight to this happening in, in sort of Christian culture. Because yeah. that's my my impulse is that this is something that's also probably very pervasive, in, particularly in religious groups. Right. Um, yeah, so this is something that I've been interested in observing for the last couple of years. Um, and it, I think the my sort of initial 
interest in this came from my own experience. Um, I wrote a piece for The Stranger in 2017 called The Detransitioners, and it was a piece about people who transitioned from one gender to another and then transitioned back. And there was this like massive... And uh, Sorry, The um, Stranger, this is uh, a, a local publication to Seattle, right? Yep, yep, the Alt Weekly. Um, so it's historically, it's been a very like sort of edgy publication. Um, Dan Savage is the editorial director. Um, it's been around for 30 years. I don't know if it'll survive COVID. Um, they've laid off almost the entire staff at this point, it's sad. Um, but so I wrote this piece uh, that was just sort of a reported, a reported piece about this phenomenon that was happening and it wasn't an opinion piece. Um, I took the utmost care to, to get the voices of happily transitioned people in the piece. I sort of I had a, I had trans sensitivity readers. I did sort of every every it was thoroughly fact check. I did everything possible because I knew this was going to be sort of a hot button issue. Um, and I did but I did everything possible to make it as like as as sort of airtight as possible. But there was still this massive outcry. I um, mean that was my first experience being in sort of the middle of a Twitter storm. I became the the Twitter character of the day, which is what you should always avoid happening to you. <laughs> Um, and so this was before we had terms like cancel culture, but uh, people attempted to cancel me. I mean, people tried to get me fired. Uh, I was freelancing at the time. They were unsuccessful. I ended up actually getting a job from the, at the paper in part because of this piece. So okay. that failed. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, people were like, were like burning stacks of the paper and sending me video of it. Um, there were flyers up in my neighborhood calling me transphobic. There's still stickers all over Seattle calling me a Nazi, calling me transphobic, calling me lots of different things. Yeah. Um, but so that was my first see. sort of, yeah, yeah. It made like walking into work very amusing to be like, okay, well, there's another sticker calling me a Nazi. Okay, what are we going to see today? Yeah. Um, but that was sort of my first entry into that. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Your first entry into this phenomenon is when you do something, when you become the character, when you do something that other people object to. Um, it's hard and, to even imagine it's because it's this, it's such a strange phenomenon. And it's, it's, it's so focused on like usually an individual it's hard to even mm -hmm. imagine it being like, or I don't know, the seriousness of it or whatever, however you want to put it. It's hard to imagine that it's a real thing or that it might just be exaggerated or whatever. But then right. you, right. you are you who are, you're the, you're, you're everything right. but a Nazi. But <laughs> that now there's right. multiple like things around town claiming as such. So, yeah. Right, right. And so, th so that was sort of my entry into this. Um, but this is something that has really, ex so this was in 2017 and this phenomenon has really expanded since then. Um, not just in terms of journalists, but like you have a, you know, there's a business, like this, this, for some reason, this seems to happen a lot in like places like Portland and Seattle. Yeah. Um, and so I started reporting on things like a business, somebody would complain about a business and then there would be, you know, a, a, like a, a, a storm of people trying to get the business closed down. And then it would turn out that whatever the business had been accused of wasn't actually like they weren't guilty of, like there was a story I reported last year or the year before about, um, a cafe in Portland where uh, the owner was accused of like like protecting a, a neo-Nazi because there was a guy in the cafe mm -hmm. who was wearing a shirt with the German Air Force logo on it. Mm -hmm. um, and so somebody saw that and, and like went online and complained about it. Well, it turns out the cafe is owned by a woman who's whose grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. And it's actually named to honor her, her like the, the particular way that she was able to survive the Nazis. That's the, the name of the restaurant um, is, yeah. uh, is a reflection of that. Um, and so- of, The pace of news right now, it, it, it chills. Even if you were to do like that hard work of say three days of investigating and figuring that out, the story is basically gone. It's just in our, it's a distant memory because there's like another 24 hour cycle to be up to. And yeah, that's oh, yeah. so amazing. 
so difficult. So anyway, keep going. Sorry. Well, so uh, so I started looking into this, and I started noticing it, um, and to me, it seemed like a, a like a great avenue for reporting because, for one reason, is because the, the initial story that spreads online is almost always incorrect. Like, there's context that's lacking, or the claims aren't true. There's always something like it's just like a rumor mill. The first thing that spreads online is almost no is almost always incorrect at some mm -hmm. level. Um, and I started seeing this more and more. And then at the same time, there was this other narrative, particularly coming from the left, of people saying cancel culture isn't real, cancel culture is a right-wing trope, it's a way for people to dodge criticism. And I think that's also can be true. Yeah, um, You can use it to dodge criticism in some ways, and people have done that. And it's sort of unfortunate that this is something that, that you know, Tucker Carlson will do segments on, because that his, it's, it's unfortunate because even if Tucker is saying the exact same thing that I'm saying or whatever, the fact that it's Tucker saying it makes people say, oh, this is just a right-wing trope, even yeah. if it's Tucker, but also Glenn Greenwald or me yeah, or whoever. Right. You know? yeah. um, and it also is something that I think we see more, on, I see more on the left because I'm on the left and I, like everybody else, I live in, I live in a bubble. Mm -hmm. My, I haven't, you know, I sort of, I do what I can to get out of my echo chamber, but I'm certainly in an echo chamber like everybody else in terms of media consumption and the people that I know. Yeah. Um, so I do think it also happens on the right. And I think pr probably particularly in, within religious communities and maybe not in a way that's as sort of public, but you know, I, I, it's not hard for me to imagine, you know, someone gets kicked out of their church because they come out as gay or trans or whatever, mm -hmm. or have, or, uh, or they say that they're, you know, pro-choice. And so it's not hard for me to imagine this is happening within small communities on the right. And it's been happening forever and ever and ever. We just don't see it. Um, yeah. And we so the, the strong label for it or like a right. yeah, public label. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But they're like, it's excommunication. I mean, it's sort of the same principle. And in some, I think in churches, it can be more um, sort of a, almost a policy. Um, so I'm totally interested in that. I don't see it as much um, just because of like who I am and, and the circles yeah. that I keep. Yeah. Um, but so I, I don't think this is this is solely a left wing phenomenon. I do think that it's more obvious on the left and maybe more prevalent. Um, and I don't think it's a new phenomenon. It's different now because what it's changed is that we have social media, right? So it's not like there have been no social taboos and nobody has called them out over the history of humanity. That's obviously not true. But the difference now is that social media can take something that should be sort of interpersonal conflict and make it a, an international story. Yeah. Um, and it's also, and it, and it tends to focus on the individual, right? So mm -hmm. instead of going after like corporations who are doing bad in the world, people tend to focus on the individual who typically doesn't have that much power. Yeah, um, right. You know, Even and there are cases- Like how much power do you have compared to like a, a corporation? Right, yeah. Right, right. And there, you know, and the people who say cancel culture isn't real, they'll, for example, they'll say like, you know, Dave Chappelle or J.K. Rowling or someone like that. These people who have money, have money. You know, yeah, who totally. are really, yeah. yeah, who are protected because money protects you in these ways. And that's not to say that it can't be, you know, I'm sure it's like emotionally difficult for J.K. Rowling to get canceled or whatever, even if there aren't going to be like long lasting financial consequences for her. But that's not what I'm concerned about as much as I'm concerned about the random person who can no longer get a job um, yeah. because some tweet was dredged up from when they were 14 years old and now every time you google that person it turns out that this person said something like uh, like terrible about gay people when they were a teenager yeah um, and so that's the other thing about cancel culture is there doesn't seem to really be a way of a way out of it 
right? So there's no mechanism for forgiveness um, the way that a church might have. And there, and a lot of people have compared this moment that we're in right now to religion. But there does seem to be this sort of these parallels. Um, 100%. Of, you know, things based more on faith than on sort of empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference, and I'm not the first person to say this, Megan Dom, who's a great writer, said this to me in an interview once. She said something about how, you know, at least with religion, there's some, the principle of redemption exists. And that's not true of cancel culture. It's just, if you say something wrong, you're bad. And if you're bad, you're evil. And if you're evil, you're always evil. Yeah. Um, and it's a problem. And it's it is. accelerating. Yeah. And, and well, you, you stole my line, Katie. So I, or you're not you, but who you, you just quoted. Uh, I, <laughs> I was going to suggest that I, I do think, and, and to be fair, the church is, uh, when we're trying, but the church has had a bad relationship with um, canceling people and excommunicating in a way that's not helpful or good, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and on, in particular with um, human sexuality and especially on the LGBTQIA+, et cetera, it, it's, it's treated that more as like a problem to be solved and like a concept to be understood than like a people to be loved and, 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 and appreciated as the Imago Dei and all the rest. And, and anyway, um, in part because there's, uh, there's, that'll always happen when something's a little bit more foreign to the group, right? It's just like some of that's natural, but then where it's not good is where it's excommunicating and again, no path to redemption or anything like that. Um, but I do think that the church has a, a strong foundation for that. Like it's, if when the church is, let's say this, when the church is not practicing that, it's being like disobedient to who it's supposed to be. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the whole, the whole narrative and idea of the gospel in Christ is forgiveness, even of your enemies, you know? Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> that's like powerful and profound. It's deeply humanizing actually, because even uh, MLK talks about this a lot, but the idea that like, when Jesus does this, he, he turns a social convention completely upside down because when he says love your enemy, it's just a clever way of forcing your hand to love everybody because now mm -hmm. you have to humanize even the person that hates you. And it's your enemy too, which is important, like underline your. So it's not just like there's a class of or a group of people that you could call the enemy. It's the person that's your personal enemy. So even if it's like an ideological difference or whatever it is, like whoever you view as your enemy, figure out how to creatively love that person. So if that's when the church is doing it right, but the church has done it wrong a pile of times. And especially when it's had institutional power, it tends to be more wrong, you know? Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot there. I, I'm a big proponent of a separation of church and state on honestly to protect the church from being its worst version of itself in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, um, but I think that piece is critical. If you don't have a path to redemption, all you're going to be doing is all you're doing really at that point is just forcing compliance, you know? Right, and, uh, right. And that's what our prison systems tend to do. That's what a lot of institutions tend to do that aren't that helpful at humanizing whoever's in there, a part of it, you know? So anyway, yeah, it's, um, I do think that's something, a huge concern for me with cancel culture in general. And, and people are doing this at the, there's the pile on stuff that you experience, you know, where you become the moment um, and you have your day in public court or whatever. <laughs> But then there's also, um, people are doing this at individual levels. Like you'll see more and more posts now that are like so dehumanizing and divisive of communities where they'll say uh, something, something anti-racist. And if you don't like this post, then block and delete me or can't like block and report me or what, you block know, it's like, kinda, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this whole thing and it's like, oh, well, this is no way to like build a community or whatever <laughs> or humanizing. No. People. 
Yeah. It's not. And it's, I mean, in terms of changing hearts and minds, the worst way to do it is to cut everybody you disagree with out of your life. You know, I see this all the time with, with people who say, you know, uh, you know, my uncle is a Trump supporter and I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Well, your uncle's not going to stop being a Trump supporter because you don't talk to him. You can't use your, your, your presence in people's lives as a sort of, you know, as a, as a, like a, negotiating point i mean you can it's just not going to be very effective yeah and to this point i think this is a, a fun thing to talk about to the point of liberal values i think there's a lot of good in there but i think a negative that's come with that the classical liberal not the political yeah. trope version the classical liberal values is so much good but um, with it came uh this idea of the individual that is morphed in some ways into hyper individualism in some ways which isn't good um, because what happens there is you lose a sense of local or community and when that happens. Um, that we talked about like living in suburbs versus living in cities before we jumped on here. And it's just like, that is a total shift. Like the living in the suburb is sort of an individual, it's easy to be an introvert in the suburbs, right? It's hard mm -hmm. to be an introvert in a city, but especially in a small town. And so this is an example I share all the time. I'll say I'm from this town of 3,000 people, and people will say, wow, that must have been obnoxious. Everyone always knew all your junk and you no secrets and all these. And it's like, yeah, it is true. That's pretty uh, par for the course. But what was great is there's one grocery store. And so you're going to run into Kevin at some point. You got to deal with your stuff. You got to figure it out. Yeah. You can't, like, let's say, cancel at the level of your interpersonal relationships. And so this idea, like, I could do that if I have a problem with someone in my town of 100,000. and, and it's a suburb of a larger metro anyway i can avoid someone until i die basically you know i can avoid my uncle yeah. or whatever but you just can't yeah. do that if you have a community uh right. you gotta figure it out right. so right. sometimes and the, the way around that is to get really good at passive aggression but yeah. but, <laughs> but people people you have to deal with it somehow you can't just avoid it yeah right right totally yeah well i want to talk about uh let's talk more about journalism and cancel culture there's this uh kind of funny story that goes with this you and I this is the first time we've met um mm -hmm. but you wrote an article that sort of included me and um you almost I don't know if you know this Katie you almost ruined my online reputation you know <laughs> uh oh uh oh my apologies <laughs> you uh it, it wasn't so much you 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 wrote this story and we'll tell the story here in a second but you wrote the story that then got copy and pasted by a number of people actually probably people that you're completely ideologically different from kind of the right wing types that were wanting to tell the story that you were telling in their own words. So they copy and pasted it so they could be ethical. They changed the phrasing around a little bit and gave you some credit, but like the game of telephone, it totally started morphing and changing to where they started mm -hmm. making me out to be this like spineless, spineless jellyfish pastor got canceled, you know? And, uh, <laughs> Anyway, that is de that was definitely not the message of the of the story that I that I that I wrote. I know I read it so I read yours after like right away because you happen to be interviewing some people that I sent a text I'll, I'll tell the story and it'll help yeah. frame it out yeah uh, so I, I had agreed I had heard about this it was Jordan Peterson documentary that was going to be coming out of Canada from people who had been uh, really intimately involved with the Peterson family they were doing a totally different film in the first place and then he blew up as this lightning rod for a culture moment. Um, so they said, hey, we might change the direction of the documentary. So then they started making it more about him and this cultural moment. And anyway, um, I heard a number of things happening. I, I knew some people that were associated with the film and someone that was going to be in it. But I also heard that the film was getting canceled at all these different venues. And this is what we're talking about. So they would have a whole um, 
movie premiere set up for a week, let's say in a borough in New York or in Toronto. And then, and I don't think all this was disingenuous, but someone would call in either an employee or someone in the community and say, hey, this film makes me feel unsafe. The film as it exists or the people that might be associated with are coming to this film, it makes me feel unsafe. Um, and again, there might've been some validity into their concerns, but the bummer was no one had seen the film yet. It wasn't right. out, you know? Right, <laughs> this thing that I've never seen makes me feel unsafe. Yeah, and it's like, oh man, like what kind of a world are we creating, you know? So anyway, the the uh, the ability to read minds was the ability to be a film critic before the film existed, you know? Right. So that's what's, what was going on. And, and so I had an interest in it because I'm just interested in this concept we're talking about, but I was really interested because I saw like a potential remedy and I had been working on this with a, um, a project with some uh, graduate work that I'm doing. It, it was, I, I thought, what if, what if all this like stuff, it seems to be happening mostly online, like at the, at your real relationships, like you might have some awkward family dinners, but for the most part, you have to humanize each other when you're really talking face to face with someone you differ with, like you and I, we differ probably on a lot ideologically, but mm -hmm. we're talking. And so we're going to humanize right. each other and we're going to, and if we were in the same room, it would be even better, right? So I thought, what if we did this? What if we brought all these people that disagree together in the room? And then we had conversations about difficult topics. That's my idea. And I was like, this film would be a great way to do that. So there's going to be people that disagree probably. And, and, and a lot of people, the majority would be people that were Peterson fans or whatever. So anyway, that's why I wanted to do it. And uh, I, I didn't have, so I wanted to host it personally. I didn't have a huge concern about getting canceled though. Cause it's not like I'm this large company or something. It was just me, Adam was hosting this film. Like that's what the poster would say for the premiere of it or whatever. Uh, but what ended up happening is ads started coming out on Facebook and on the internet. And there was a lot of people excited about it and buying tickets, but there's also a, a a majority, but a loud, loud uh, minority, excuse me, but a loud, loud minority. It was trying to put like memes and noise into comment threads to make sure those were useless um, and just trying to make it a bad experience. But there's lots of threats in there too. Um, threats to property, threats to me, threats to people in general um, that would be attending this event and trying to essentially violently uh, shut the thing down or at least a threat of violence. And I started getting direct messages where people were saying, hey, all sorts of nasty things and the cocktail Molotovs and whatever, you know. But one guy, one guy in particular sent one on a day and he said, I, we don't want to have to bring out the guillotines again to fix society and the blood, the streets will run red with like the blood of liberation and like all this stuff. And I was like, well, that one's pretty dark, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I sent that one in particular to the film creators. And ironically, they were interviewing with you about the film. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember. Yeah. That oh, I totally remember. Yeah. So I was on the phone with them and uh, I'm forgetting their names. Madison and Patricia. They were great. But yeah. Yeah. Patricia, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was on the phone with them, interviewing them about these attempts to get their film canceled. You know, like you said, like they would have it scheduled in a, you know, a theater in Seattle or Toronto or Brooklyn or whatever, and then there'd be complaints and it would get canceled. Um, and so I was on the phone with them. And while I was on the phone with them, they got a message from you that was like, you know, like, like cut and pasted this threat. And the threat was, it was insane. I wish I, I wish I had it, like had it up on my screen right now, because it was said something about like, we believe in freedom of speech. However, if you screen this, if you screen this movie, we will beat your ass. Like it, oh, it was, yeah. it was like the threat was insane, like totally unhinged. It was um, dark. Yeah. yeah, super dark. Um, and so I put that in the piece. Um, yeah, and did, did you end up like you did? You didn't end up screening it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We took like because so the threats were that was 
well, that was the most like creative and it's like uh, nastiness, but there was plenty of other things. So we had, we took lots of precautions as far as like our local PD knew about the film screening and they were available like outside because they don't want anything to happen in the community either. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't want to, with everything happening neighboring in Portland, they're like, we don't want to like yeah. set a tone that, yeah. that can come out here either. I Go think ahead, you, you've benefited in some ways because it, you screened the film right at the same time that an anti, like a member of Antifa was killed in Portland. Exactly. And then, so that crowd, and I don't totally want to speculate on like who was threatening your, your film, but I do think there was probably some overlap there. And so they were like highly distracted at that moment because one of their people had been like shot outside of their Antifa bar or something. So I think in terms of timing, um, you sort of lucked out as tragic as that is. No, it was, it was, oh, yeah, that's so sad. And it's so sad too, because, and I know they have their reasons, but it's not, they're not good. Like they weren't cooperating with the PD there and right. instead were just right. causing some destruction over it. And so it was a bummer because there wasn't like any sort of justice for who, yeah, the guy mm -hmm. looks like he just got killed, but it's hard to even tell because right. there's no, no one will talk about it. Anyway, right. Um, I think you're right, though. And, and I'll say this. I, I don't know what I'm allowed to share about it. I think it's fine because nothing came of it. But they did a lot of investigating before the film and to make sure, like, who are these people connected to and how are they connected? And it was definitely some of these groups in Portland that we're talking about. And also they, um, yeah, they agreed that that probably chilled a lot of it. Because yeah, yeah, we were we were right off of a max stop of a public transit stop. They could have just loaded up and yeah. shown up, you know. And, uh, yeah, the suburbs aren't that far away. No, no, not at all. But it sounded like that was the plan. So anyway, you did this story, and uh, you were charitable and super clear and honest, and like you just said, you just reported as it was basically, and continued mm -hmm. to have a conversation with them. Because what was such a bummer is when you do a film about someone that's such a lightning rod for culture like Jordan Peterson, the the line between puff piece and harsh criticism, it gets a lot more thin. It, you know, you gotta be like really choosy with how you, and they put together such an honest film. Yeah. It, it was like, and people will call it balanced, but I think honest is the better way of putting it. It, mm -hmm. it really gave voice to everybody involved. And uh, yeah. in, in such a way that people that were fans of Jordan and people that hated him didn't like the film that much because it was so like charitable. <laughs> They're like, no, you need to be more harsh or no, you need to be more of a fan. And it just frustrated everybody in a good way. Anyway, um, all that said, this fascinating thing happened where that whole uh, article that you wrote morphed in this copy and paste way into all these people that were trying to, like you said, the moment was the moment. So they were like, oh, cancel culture. And this is, this fits the narrative, let's say. And in a cheap way for them, it was more like right, mostly right-wing publications that were doing this. Um, and it fit the narrative, so they copy and pasted, but they changed it, so it wasn't just a copy and paste, but as they started to do that, it started turning into this, uh, Portland pastor cancels film showing due to Antifa threat, and then, like, your typical Tim Pool types are doing, like, their, like, fast, like, noise about it, and they're yeah. like, he, he canceled it, he canceled it, I can't believe they got this guy yeah. to cancel it, and stuff, and it didn't hurt me that bad, personally, it was like, there's no, what was fascinating is just seeing it, like, that close, I was like, there's no fixing this, like, I wrote to some people and said, hey, you goofed up. And so did the film creators are like, hey, you got the details wrong. Like, read, read the article again. Yeah. And they did and they edited it. But it's gone. It's lost. You know, it's over. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be one of these. I like, I don't want to talk about like, I don't want to be this one of these people talking about like bitching about fake news. Like that's not the correct term, but there's a lot of bad journalism out there um, on both the left and the right. It's, and once you start to see that, it's impossible to unsee it. Um, So I'm way, the the longer I work in this industry, the more skeptical I am of everything that I read. I mean, you can read something in the New York Times, you can read two articles in the same paper that directly contradict each other. And it's like, how are we, you know, and there are major problems with that. Like, how are we supposed to trust what we read? How are we supposed to trust what's happening in the world if these institutions can't even bother to fact check themselves? Right. And the, uh, well, and some of it gets back, I keep like beating on the same point, but the pace of news and some of it's on the consumers, I guess, or I don't know, but the pace of news and the pace at which we want news and we want to be like on top of the current event or whatever. Like, so even let's say 50 years ago, you were getting yesterday's news or last week's news, right? Right. And now you're getting like news now and in the moment. And there's a ton of benefit to that. But the deficit is like, even if something is fixed, edited, you know, whatever, uh, it's like, it's so lost in the ether of just everything that exists, you know? And so I don't know. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Yeah. What's your opinion on like that and just journalism in general, where it's at? I mean, I think you're right. Fake news is a cheap and kind of dumb trope, but Um, but there is some sort of ethics around news right now that seems missing and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What are you, what are your opinions on some of that? Yeah, I think a lot of this is market forces, right? So, um, let's say 15, 20 years ago, uh, at a paper like the stranger, you would have had like one deadline a week because it's a weekly paper. Right. Okay. And you would spend, you know, the week like, and it would be, it would be like harder to write that one piece because instead of like Googling information, you would have to call people and go to the library and whatever, all that stuff. And then with the, the rise of, of specifically Craigslist, Craigslist was the first sort of dagger, um, in the heart of, of our existing media model. Um, the ad money just dried up, right? So classified ad, people stopped buying classified ads because they could post some online for Craig, at Craigslist. Um, and then there were, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and like social media became a thing. And, and Facebook and Google in particular scooped up what remained of these, of like a shrinking market for ad dollars. So at the same time, that you had fewer and fewer resources and smaller and smaller newsrooms. Like the Seattle Times before Craigslist had 5,000 employees. Now they can, you know, they've like sold off all their properties and they can fit everybody on two floors of the building. I don't know how many employees they have now, but just these major papers are just, are just tiny. And at the same time, you're expecting more from your staff, right? So at The Stranger, I would have two or three deadlines a day. And when you're working uh, at that pace, you don't have time to like deeply report out stories for the most part. You don't even have time to leave your office for the most part. So instead of going out to, to school board meetings and talking to people about what's going on in the world, your, your reporters themselves, people like me, are searching the internet for their own stories, right? So what you get is a lot of aggregation. So the New York Times will publish a piece or the AP or Washington Post or whatever. And then there's this immediate flood of every other journalism outfit in the country basically reporting the same story. Yeah. Um, you know, which is... I, there's, I guess, some utility of that, but it's just sort of necessary with the existing models that we have. Um, But at the same time, you don't have time to do due diligence, you know, and this is not the fault of the media. This is really sort of, if you want to blame somebody, you know, you can blame like Google and Facebook. This is not the media's fault. I think most people in the media would prefer to go back to a model where you had, you know, 
bigger staffs, more time and more money. Um, but that's just not, that's just not the model that we have now. Um, so at the same time that there's more media than ever, the quality of it is getting worse. Um, and this isn't, this isn't new, like yellow journalism has existed forever. Um, clickbait has existed before there were clicks, you know, um, these sort of, uh, you know, tabloid, tabloid like stories. Um, so it's not new, but it's, it's like way accelerated because of the, the funding models that we have for media now. And it's a really big problem. I mean, local newspapers have essentially ceased to exist. Uh, you know, like does Hillsboro have a, have a local paper? No, really, I mean, there's like a, a monthly thing, but yeah, it's, it, yeah, it right. Not, it's mostly a I'm guessing, yeah. yeah, I'm guessing that, you know, 20 years ago, Hillsboro probably had its own paper. I don't know if this is true, but it probably did. Most little town, I grew up in a really small town with, uh, you know, 2000 people and we had a, you know, we had a weekly paper. Mm -hmm. um, and these things, and, and those papers are really important because those are the people who can develop a beat and who can go to these meetings and find out what's going on in local government. This is what, this is what media should really be about is telling people what's happening in their own towns. But instead you have a few, you know, giant sources like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times or whatever. And then there's this sort of distributed model where nobody else can survive. So it's really winner take all. And it's been, um, it's been terrible to watch this happen. It's horrible for, for local communities and for good governance. And that said, it's also been, in some ways, it's been great for me. Like I started this podcast now. So what I'm saying is like, there are also opportunities, right? So like I'm making more with this podcast, I'm making more money than I did a staff job, you know, which is insane. And I'm extremely lucky. This is, this is rare. Yeah, but there are opportunities for people um, who have a desire and sort of the the it takes a certain I guess personality to do it. Um, but there are opp opportunities there for independent creators to sort of claim their piece of it. Um, again, it's sort of a winner take all situation. But so if you want to be a sort of a you know the kind of reporter who or or like figure who's sort of a pundit, then there are opportunities for that. But at the same time, like you know, you're not going to get someone covering your local school board meetings, which is a big problem. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not without, yeah, consequences or deficits for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, um, this is good. So I, part, I, we, I got lost in the weeds a little bit of that story and telling it. Part of what I wanted to tell it is it, it touches on this concern and this reality that you're talking about within journalism, but it also covers this concept of cancel culture that, yeah, you've been talking about for a while. So the two seem to be overlapping in ways that I'm not like super excited or comfortable with, you know? Um, yeah. And I don't want to say it's like all journalism, but certainly a, a loud um, source of it is participating in this rather than, uh, I don't want to just say protecting, but rather than like looking to like help an underdog or help someone that's like getting canceled. Like it's just a pile on. And like you said, the, the algorithm and the networking, how it works, it just sort of feeds itself. And anyway, like, what do you see going on there? You're in this world and you said, like you mentioned, like, I think some of your opportunity is because you understand the industry, right? But you understand you're, you're, net, you're well networked. You have lots of friends in these worlds. And so as far as like conversations you're having is, is cancel culture, it is a thing, I think, but do people actually think it's a thing now? And yes. are they, cons I, okay. 
Are they concerned about yeah. it though, or what's going on? Yeah. I mean, the number, obviously, like this is anecdotal, right? But the number of emails that I get or direct messages daily from people who work in some particular industry who says, like, who tells me a story about something's going on or says, like, I want to say something, but I'm terrified that I'm going to lose my job. This is just accelerating really, really rapidly. And you'll, you still have naysayers who say, like, cancel culture isn't real or whatever. Well, it is. I mean, it just, it is. And I don't like, I don't, it's not new, but it is real. Um, And so I don't really understand why people continue to uh, sort of act like this thing that we can all see happening isn't happening. But, you know, I think they, you know, they have their own motivations for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I hate like trying to read minds or speculating too far, but what do you think? I mean, are some of those motivations just like more innocent? It's just like, this is the only way I can yeah. survive, you know, like it's, there's well, some of that. Problem, I think, right? So I've talked to a lot of people about this. And if you, you have these people who say like, you know, cancel culture isn't real. And I say like, well, explain what's going on. They say like, well, what's happening is that this is the first time that minority groups have like a platform to call out problematic behavior. And so it's just a, a way of like, you know, historically oppressed groups to sort of claim their own power. Adjusting the scales. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that's an okay argument, um, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Um, It just means that you're okay with it. You think that it's a good thing. So when people say cancel culture isn't real, what I actually hear is cancel culture is real and I I like it. Yeah. Right. 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 I have a a different opinion about it, but it's factually speaking, that's a good way of putting it. It's still, it it just objectively seems real. Like, yeah, people are, like you said, there's, there's people that, and there's someone who's just an accountant or some, you know, this is a caricature, but an accountant who said something silly as a 18, 16, whatever year old, and uh, they might lose their job. And not just lose their job, I mean, they're like yeah. future livelihood, you know? Your livelihood, it's not just your job, it's your li- it's your ability to make a living. There was a, Yasha Monk who writes for The Atlantic um, yeah. and actually announced a new venture today that I'm very excited about. Um, he wrote a piece, published a piece last week in The Atlantic that was a great example of this. So there was a guy, I can't remember where he lives, but there was a guy who is a his Hispanic, um, some sort of like city employee, or I'm not quite sure what he did, but he was driving in his truck. And I guess he had his like hand like dangling outside the truck and his, and he was like making, his hand was like making this okay yeah. symbol, which has apparently, according to some people, been like appropriated by the right. And so that's a sign of white supremacy. It's um, so he like had it. Yeah. yeah. So his hand was like dangling outside his truck and some guy pulled up to him. And I guess it had like maybe the logo of the company or whatever he works for. Um, right. Right. And some guy pulled up to him. Yeah. And, uh, and, and started like taking his picture and then like going like this. And so the guy like didn't know what was going on. And he was like going like this back, just sort of like, why is this crazy person like yelling at me and taking my picture? Um, so the guy, whoever saw this, um, posted this online and this guy, this Latina worker, like working class guy, Latino gets fired from his job, right? Fired from his job for his crime is literally dangling his his arm out the window and inadvertently making a gesture that some people say has been co-opted by the Mm alt-right. The guy is a and he, you know, he's fired by this company that's run by all white people. So just the irony here of a bunch of white people firing a person of color who, like, the guy's not online. He had no idea that this symbol is has been co-opted by the alt-right. And he checks so, like, shit a lot like that. of the boxes of, yeah, exactly. He yeah. checks a lot of the boxes right. of, like, someone who, right. I mean, he's a mig- he was a migrant, right? He wasn't just, right. I mean, or, like, right. first or second generation migrant. Right, yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, that's so sad. 
It's, it's so sad. It's so sad. And there, so that's cancel well, culture. Those were the cases that we don't always hear about. We know about this one because Yasha Monk wrote about it, but we don't always hear about these. And I'm way more concerned about that than I am Dave Chappelle getting bad reviews because people don't like his jokes. Um, exactly. That's real cancel culture. When a, when a working class person is unable to make a living because of someone else somewhere was offended by something. And especially when like, when you, the guy has done nothing wrong. I mean, you do have cases where people have said offensive things things there was a there's a um yasha wrote about this too there's a a, a palestinian restaurant um in minneapolis and the daughter of the owner um wrote some like really horrible things online when she was 14 years old she was like so like anti-semitic stuff some like really offensive things mm-hmm. she was 14 right this was 10 years ago yeah there this gets dredged up he fires her which like eh, i don't know if i would fire my own daughter but he fires her but that's not enough his landlord ended his lease of his building because of this firestorm but he and and also he was a he was a, a palestinian immigrant i mean you cannot find a sort of more oppressed people that's on right. earth yeah and this yeah. guy and is canceled because of stuff that his daughter did that's right as a he teenager didn't do it right yeah, yeah no he didn't even do anything he didn't yeah. even do anything yeah so those things are happening and to deny that they're happening or say somehow it's, it's righteous that it's worth, it's worth some greater cause. I just, it, I find it a really incoherent line of thinking. Right. And it seems like, I mean, I, I used to, when, when this stuff started, like you said, the name or the coining for it might be new, but it's not, it's not a brand new phenomena. And uh, when it started happening, um, my initial reaction was, trying to predict the future. It was like, well, what's gonna happen is it's going to cannibalize and eat itself. Like there's no way it can't when there's no road to redemption, no road for forgiveness. And it's this constant process of purification. Right. Uh, you're, you're never, because human beings are human beings. Like everyone is capable of and good at making mistakes. And so like you will, and, and then if that is the methodology, like not only do we have to keep purifying, but we'll never, be done purifying like there's no objective goal or like clear metric for success other than we have to purify and so that's some of the deeply religious stuff and it's like it's religious and it, it borders on like what we tend to call more like an occult you know where it's, there's no mm-hmm. redemption. it's it's intended to cut you off from society and any sort of uh communal relationship to anyone outside of the in-group or the tribe you know and it literally does that, you know, and, and so you're supposed to unfriend people that are disagreeable. You're supposed to like defamily and unfamily from people. And, and it's like, anyway, and then the only, and human beings are built for community and connection. So now you have a group, but it's literally your only group. You've literally burned every bridge otherwise. Right. Then, that's a whole other thing. But the, within that group, if the, if the methodology for like, what is our goal is constant purification, it will have to turn back on itself. So I had this idea of like, just again, trying to predict the future and read culture. Well, eventually this is going to burn out because it can't survive, but it seems like it's like, like I said, is it, it marries up to institutional things and, and powerful things. It's like, it's just on and going and I don't see an end, a clear end to it, you know? Yeah, I don't know how this is going to end. I think we're in the midst of a moral panic. Um, and I, I, see more evidence of that daily um i don't i think things are going to get way worse before that it will end someday like humans we always go through these cycles i mean there was this like satanic panic thing in the 1980s and 90s where these these kids yeah where people like thousands of people across the country were accused of crimes they didn't commit 
mostly by children um, and people believed it, you know, and I, I see a lot of these same, these same sort of forces where people get whipped up into these mass hysterias and any sort of reason goes out the window and, and critical thinking goes out the window because we are, we're social people and we're also, most of us are followers. Most of us, you know, I think everybody likes to think that they would be the person, you know, um, like secretly fighting back against the Nazis or they, like everybody thinks that they would be the one who was an abolitionist in 1860 living in the South. Well, actually, no, most yeah. of us aren't. Most of us are, most of us are followers and do what everybody else around us is doing, which is a natural human impulse. It is incredibly difficult to stand up against the people around you, especially when they're your friends and family. Yeah. Um, so I think this is just an inevitable thing that that happens in, in, in human culture, made much worse by by the tools that we now operate with, primarily social media. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, we have these new tools about it. And, and I'm trying to remind people all the time, some of the conversations are like people who are like, man, maybe I'll take like a, a break or take like in the religious sense, I'm going to fast from social media for like a week and just see what I learn, you know, and see what happens. Mm -hmm or I'm gonna take a break for a month or just quit Facebook or whatever the thing is that they're gonna do. Um, but they have, there is this weird like narrative and guilt about that. Like, well, that's, you're flexing your privilege and there's some, you should listen to that because that might be true, I guess. But um, the social media is new too. Like it, we're acting like we, this is like a totally necessary part of society or, in, or that the way that we're using it is perfectly pure and like natural and normal and it's like, we don't know what in the world we're doing. Like, who knows what the hell's going on? Like, this, this, who knows, like, 10, 20 years from now, what we'll look back and be like, wow, that was wrong, you know? But right, we're, right. we're in the moment right now, and it's hard to even see it. But anyway, there's a, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it, there's something to the idea that, like, this is very new, we should pay attention and be a little bit more humble about, like, we don't know what we're doing necessarily, like, with this, you know? Totally. It's yeah, yeah. Really we're basically all involved. We're, it's like we're all involved in an experiment and a lot of people, we can't even see it. We can't even, you know, we can't even see it. It's really, it's really disturbing, but I don't think that, um, you know, unless these platforms die, I don't think there's any, any going back. Yeah. Um, we just got to figure it out. Yeah. So we'll start podcasts and we'll do things like you're doing. Yeah. 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 No. Um, well, I want to, um, yeah, I, well, a couple of things I had a thought on, um, I can't remember it now. Something about the, oh, on the, so that's what it was. On the religious side of things, uh, you were asking some questions about that um, earlier. And one thing that's interesting that I see happening um, to speak of the church, the church, uh, let's say there was this narrative. The church I'm in is more of like a, it's non-denominational, but it'd be evangelical-ish, you know, in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form. That would be the caricature you could put on it. Very nuanced, but that would be the label probably. So something like that. But anyway, within that world, there used to be a pretty good like homogeneity to, to that world. And then there was this, uh, let's say the non-church, like non-religious, that's religious in general, but the non-religious folks were kind of homogenous as well. Um, and you could see this with like new atheist types, for example, like Richard Dawkins and people came out with like books, especially post 9-11 as part of their popularity there is this concern about the radicalization of the right. potential radicalization of religion, which is valid. And so they write these books, they take off and Sam Harris is in, a lot of these people are people I follow and like a lot of. And uh, anyway, but what started happening is they started having, if you conceptualize these groups as like a circle divided in half. Okay. So it's a circle. There's one side and the other side. 
and they were having their fights about stupid arguments about evolution and things like that, right? But there started to become a division within this one side of, let's say, those outside of the church. And Peter Bogosian's talked about this a lot, actually, where you have like this woke-ish faction of like new atheism, et cetera. And then this sort of traditional liberal values, et cetera, like, you know, human, all these different things we're talking about. And there's a lot of postmodernism and the phrase is misunderstood and overused, but like a neo-Marxism in some of that, of that wokish movement. So you have a division there, but then I will say, and I think he talks about this as well. There's a similar division that's happened within some of evangelicalism, where there is this, a lot of it's generational. So the evangelicals of, let's say my parents' generation and older married to the state and politics of the right really hard. And, uh, and, and in unhealthy ways, you know, the moral majority of those ideas. Right. And, uh, and then, but they've divided in so many ways. So now like my generation and below, they're flirting with or even diving headfirst into this woke stuff. And to your point about tools, like they have all these tools now, but they don't really know how to use them. Like they have a hammer and everything is a nail, you know, <laughs> and, like, mm -hmm. and they're playing a lot of the mm -hmm. same games you see in this cancel world or the world that you're in. So even though our bubbles might be different, I think we're seeing a lot of the same things happen in these weird divisions that are going Yeah. yeah. Peter's talked about actually, I keep bringing him up because he helped frame this idea of these circles. So now you have four quarters. He said, what's crazy is that he has more in common now, ideologically speaking, obviously the religion would be the big difference, but as far as principles and, and he, how they view humanity and what a human is and culture and all these things, he's like, I have more in common with, these evangelical types that hold on to these types of like post enlightenment values than I do with like mm -hmm. the woke SJW types. But then like the woke SJW types have more in common with this wokeish thing going on in the church as well. And it's, it's, right. so it's, it's, that is where I would say like a lot of this is religious. I really think that's true. I think there's something. Going yeah. On there. There's definitely, it appears that there's sort of a breaking down of the traditional sort of left right boundaries in yeah. some ways. And these, these principles that I've always considered, uh, you know, sort of liberal values. Um, and I mean that in sort of the political sense, things like, yeah. you know, defending free speech or due process or whatever are no longer the purview of the left, which is destabilizing for me i mean it's like you see the like the aclu right now the aclu right. defended the rights of nazis to march wouldn't do that today you know they have they have shifted into this much woker sort of social justice narrative which i find deeply unfortunate there are enough people fighting for woke values we need people willing to fight for liberal values um yeah things are very strange right now very yeah. strange i do i mean i find myself i find it's almost easier for me to engage now with with conservatives than it is leftist. Um, and I think part of that is because when you have less in the charitability piece uh, or the like the back, the mutual uh, hurt or what, 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 why is that? What's going on? I think part of it, I think that's part of it, but I also think there's this sort of, there's this principle called the narcissism of small differences, right? So if I'm, if I'm talking with someone who I agree with on 95% of the issues, and there's this 5% that we don't get along with, that 5% is the thing that we focus on. And you see this online, you see like, you know, people will get mad at me for writing a piece about detransition, but they're not at the same time going out and yelling at the people who are trying to get bathroom bills passed, right? Yeah. So it, so instead of looking at like, okay, so your ideological enemy here isn't actually me. We actually believe the same stuff. We just have these like very minor 
differences of opinion, yeah. you're going to attack me instead of going in and attacking the person who like, who disagrees with you about everything. On 95 um, so I think, Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. about 95%. But so because of that, I find it easier to sort of talk with conservatives because there isn't this pressure to conform. I know that if I'm talking to someone on right-wing radio, we are not going to end up on the same page. I know that. And I'm fine with that. Um, and so I, I, I have a little bit more fun. So like I'm on, I'm on some conservative radio shows every once in a while and I have a lot more fun talking with them than I, than I would somebody who I actually agree with on most, of, most but not all of the issues. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting. And that was part of when I said I wanted to get like different people in rooms together is like, I talked about this with, um, with a religious thinker a couple of weeks ago, but this idea that like, if I'm so Katie, let's say I'm talking to you and you say X, whatever X is, if I can predict like everything you think about everything else based off of that, I'm not really talking mm -hmm. to a person anymore. I'm mostly just right. talking to an ideology. And that's not very interesting. Right. It's not very fun. Right. There's and that's a, not how people really are. I right. mean, we, I think we, we managed to really like flatten people specifically online. So if you say one thing I disagree with, you're bad, um, which is just humans are way more complex than that. And we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have sort of easily digestible values, but we act like we do. Right. Right. And so, um, I, well, I want to talk about, I kind of wrap up with, um, so it's easy, not that we've been doing this, I don't think, but it's easy to kind of dunk on like the worst versions of things, you know, and just talk about mm -hmm. like, and I don't think we're making scarecrow arguments either. Like a lot of this is just rooted in reality, like we said, but like, what are the, well, maybe two things. Uh, I know because she's like your favorite person to talk about with Robin DiAngelo and all the rest, like, is there, <laughs> is there, is there source material that you're like, 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 uh, white fragility and stuff like that that you're concerned about so let's do one more concern but I would love to kind of wrap up with what are some of the best things you see coming out of this or are there things where you're like this is good-hearted it just needs to be adjusted but sure. first like I mean I oh. think a lot of this is is good-hearted I think they're I think specifically after the election of Donald Trump a lot of people a lot of my peers a lot of people on the left are terrified like really think that Donald Trump is sort of a is is the Voldemort is the, the Satan character um, to get even more religious and they want to be on you know quote unquote the right side of history and I think that a lot of this is like you see all these white people right now reading white fragility a, a book that I think is will do immense harm to relationships between white people and people of color um, the, the more that it spreads and I have a I've talked about this I think in every one of my podcasts at this point um, it's just, I don't want to well, get too the, deep into Robin but it, I don't either but it's just the most popular book out there right now and it's I, yeah yeah I think we would and it, yeah problematic yeah for people who yeah for sorry to interrupt you but for people who are interested um, we have we have a couple of episodes on blocked and reported that are specifically devoted to Robin D'Angelo okay and the problems with her particular ideology which I think is actually racist and I don't mean this in sort of like the reverse racism thing I think she is like she treats people of color like they're sort of totems um very paternal so yeah, yeah. right extremely um and she treats white people as though we were we are born with the original sin of of whiteness and r racism and the only way to repent is to is to admit your guilt and uh and take her take her courses i guess they're so very expensive um <laughs> but i do think a lot of this comes from a from a, a place of of wanting to make the world a better place and i appreciate that i just think that the tactics are wrong and will have the exact opposite effects um both in terms of making relationships between white people and people of color worse 
and by causing a backlash that if you know if you're a white person and you are told you were born racist and there's nothing you can do about it i think that's going to make white people aggrieved white people I think it'll attract them to actual right racism, to white nationalism. And I'm deeply I, concerned I about that. that. I would share that. Concern. And I think she's, yeah. And I th also think that she is, she's perpetuating this narrative that a lot of anti-racist thinkers are perpetuating that every interaction that a white person has with a person of color, if there's any sort of slight, if I interrupt a person of color, that is racist. And I don't think that's a good way for, for, for black people or any other, I don't think that's a good way for anybody to live. I think yeah. if you racialize everything, you're just going to make it way harder for people to have genuine human relationships. And that's not good. Um, so even if it comes from a place of really like wanting to make the world a better place and wanting to address racism, if you do it in a way that makes the world more racist, well, that's a problem. Um, yeah. Doesn't matter how good your intentions are. Well, and just the, yeah, the, it sets up all those, like the internet phrasing for it is this like uh, Kafka trap, right? But it's this idea yeah. like, you get stuck into this no-win situation and I think you're right there's a really big bummer about it so I had this conversation with someone actually about um, genuine criticism and concerns about um, policing and the way unions have handled things let's say and, totally. and, and their needs and I was talking about like the need for um, changing the way we police certain communities for a very long time and the sure. over not just like physical harsh treatment of certain communities but the over policing of a certain metro but yeah, right. of course and at the happen. same time, at the same time that there's the, the, and I'm not the first person to make this point at all, but at the same time that you have over policing in the same communities, you also have under policing, where if you call the police because you hear your neighbor getting beat up by her husband, the police won't show up or you're robbed and the police won't show up. So it's just bad policing. And that's real. That's absolutely real. It is. But and I don't think the way to get to, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say the, the principle like toward that is like, uh, there's there's not a great accountability to uh, who's policing the police. That's the idea, right? Like so, like right, the right. unions ought to be and should be doing that. But there's a lot of things we've known for a long time that they haven't been doing, like being held right. accountable or just moved around or things that like religious groups when they get in too much institutional power have done too. Like totally, some, some priest does some terrible things and like a or and he just gets moved to another parish or something, you know? Right. And it's like right. there's there's got to be some. So anyway been talking about these things for a long time but it seems like some of this source material and stuff it it distracts from even those very real and larger problems right um, mm -hmm. but anyway uh, the point or the, the reason I bring some of this up is the conversation I'm having with people is the bummer is the way we're framing the narrative or at least the way it is in popular culture right now it's going to incentivize the worst actors it's going to incentivize the people that like they want like a little bit of like problems to sign up to be cops you know they're, it's going to incentivize right. people that are like, you know, anyway, that are in those alt-right groups to sign up to be police. And then right. it's going to de-incentivize the decent, like I know people that were social workers that moved into policing because they saw like some good that could come from doing that. And right. now they're right. like talking like, I, I don't want to like worry about my family getting docs or I don't want right. to worry about like uh, being known to my children is like this terrible character and all these things that yeah. are just hard things to wrestle with that again it's de-incentivizing decent people and incentivizing the worst actors you know so like it really is kind of stuff and it's the same thing with this anti-racist like popular narrative that's going on right now it's incentivizing the worst behaviors and de-incentivizing decent normal human interaction you know right right yeah yeah i think you're totally right about that yeah 
so I think the all the the way to get out of this is to probably listen to blocked and reported right and uh, and join my patreon number one listen number two give me money that's that's how you get that's how you get the redemption and you're so between your co-host but you are the you're certainly the better host right <laughs> I think so how many tell me said that <laughs> good deal well, uh, um, he, he's, I benefit from Jesse's intelligence. Jesse is much smarter than me. And so he can do all the hard work and I can just chime in with, uh, with quips. Clever wit and quip. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, good. Yeah. that's good. Well, so, okay. Follow you, follow you on social. You don't know what's crazy. I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to out, you know, uh, conspiracy theorists this thing up, but I had, I, you were like my first follow on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, the per first person I followed on Twitter. Um, it, I, the algorithm told me I should like you, I think, or something. I don't Interesting. Know. It was probably, I probably liked like Brett and a few, that might not be true, mm -hmm. but I might have like picked like Brett Weinstein and a few people. And then they're like, you would also like Katie. And I was like, yeah, cool. And here's the deal. What's fascinating. I didn't connect the dots about the article until maybe a month ago that the one, oh, funny. I remembered the article, but, and I have it like right. saved from like reports that I've done, but mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't connect the dots that you were that person. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Anyway, well, yeah, it's funny. And, but what's fascinating is, uh, I don't know what happened. Maybe I fell asleep on my phone or maybe Twitter didn't, didn't like me following you. Like, you still showed up in my feed because enough people that I follow like your post or retweet or something. But I just realized like two days ago that I wasn't following you for some reason. I don't know what happened. That, a couple people have told me that same thing. I don't know what that is. I don't either. I, like, I don't know what that is. I, there's this term called shadow banning. I don't know if it's real, but people say that I have gotten lots of messages from people say you're a shadow banned. I was following you and now I'm not. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> people should. <laughs> yeah, people I don't know. On social, they should also do the Patreon and and make sure that they're still following you on both of those in case they get shadow banned. That would be good. Yeah. Don't don't let Twitter dictate who you follow. <laughs> Katie, I appreciate you making time for this. I want to respect your time, but thanks for taking some time. This was like a random request and you were right on it. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for speaking with me. Cool. All right. We'll catch you later.